people through their music. Out of the Box with Joey Watson on FBI 94.5. Hello there, FBI radio listener. Yes, Joey Watson here and you are listening to Out of the Box. Every Thursday from midday to one, I get to sit down with one person and cut through the stories from their life and the records which have defined them. Today's guest has 500,000 YouTube subscribers and more than 30 million views, but he's not a rapper, he's never done ASMR, nor is he a fitness model. No, Eddie Wu is a maths teacher. Some years ago, Eddie started recording his classes and uploading them to YouTube for a student struggling with cancer. He didn't know it at the time, but Eddie's ability to communicate knowledge online has given him celebrity as far-reaching as Greenland and made a difference to thousands of young lives. He is the 2018 Australian local hero, the publisher, published author of Wu's Wonderful World of Maths and the teacher you wish you'd had in high school. But today, Eddie Wu, thank you very much for being here on Out of the Box. Joey, absolute pleasure to be here. Thanks. Eddie, before we get into some stories, I want to start with a practical math lesson. Could you tell me why a lightning bolt has the same shape as the blood vessels in my body? Uh, this is one of my favorite pieces of mathematics. And it's sort of mind-blowing to consider at the first point because most people think those shapes, what do they have to do with mathematics at all? I think mathematics is numbers and formulas. But here's the simple idea. What is a lightning bolt? You've got this electrical charge building up in a cloud and it gets to a point where that electricity's gotta go somewhere and it looks around in the atmosphere and it says, where is the path of least resistance? But that energy, it all spreads out into space and it does this in this sort of branching off, forking pattern because there are little pockets of the air that are slightly easier for the electricity flow through and that's kind of randomly distributed but it all spreads out. That's the key idea. There's power, it's got to go somewhere. Now the human body is not like that but it's trying to solve the same problem. You get oxygen from the air and then it's got to go from your lungs to every cell in your body. Your circulatory system is trying to solve exactly the same geometric problem as clouds in the sky, trying to get rid of electricity, except they're trying to get rid of oxygen. So that's why there's this pattern, this geometry underneath there. The pattern is what makes mathematics what it is. And we actually have models that can map out a human being's blood vessels or a bolt of lightning. It's all in the numbers. Wow, that is genuinely exciting. I, I, I'd want to ask more, but uh, this show is not a, a math format, uh, unfortunately. <laughs> so let's uh, ask a non-maths related question. Eddie, why did your parents decide to move to Australia in the early 1970s? It was a really deliberate choice from my parents, who I think having grown up in Malaysia, um, but not being of Malaysian descent themselves, they knew, they saw firsthand the really massive difference that education can make. You know, I think that they would have dreamed that, you know, they could go to university. Uh, but again, because of, you know, ethnic differences, they realized, you know what, to be that in Malaysia, you'd really have to be like the top 0.001% of academic performers. And, um, you know, that's an ambitious thing for anyone to aspire to. And they, they looked, you know, just a little bit further south and they saw Australia as this land of opportunity. They saw it as a place with these egalitarian values where public education was something that was freely accessible and world-class. And uh, universities were things that, you know, not everyone could go to, but 
much larger proportions of the population than just that very tiny sliver of people who could get those scholarships. So they really came to this place uh, to open up doors for my brother, my sister and I who were all born here in Australia. To paint a picture of their lives, what what job did your mother do in Malaysia? Yeah, my mum and my dad both worked in their own careers but in quite different ones. So you asked about my mum, she was actually a journalist. So she was a newsreader and one of the things about being a newsreader in a country like Malaysia which has so many different ethnic backgrounds there is that she had command of so many languages. I literally lost count of how many languages that she could speak. And that was the uh, the life that she had and that was really successful. And she very much had to leave that behind. She decided, you know what, as a journalist, those skills are not necessarily going to transfer all that well. My connections in this land are not going to lend themselves to be connections in Australia. And so she made the really tough decision to leave that career behind. What, what job was she doing when she got here? Uh, she decided actually, because my brother was born uh, quite a few years before before I was. Uh, so he was born not long after we um, they started a family here. So she actually made the call to be the homemaker and to work but not get paid for it in looking after us at home. It's a big sacrifice. Do you think that they settled in well when they came? There were some real struggles and tensions uh, because in the area that my parents decided to move to when I was younger, uh, which is sort of northwest Sydney, at that time, there were not that many people who, frankly, looked like me. Um, there were a few people of ancient descent here and there, but they were pretty uncommon. And there were certainly very few people who fit in my category. You know, uh, this is what I look like, but I don't sound anything like what I look like. And so that was... That was a cause for struggle. I think that, you know, communicating with others, uh, more so for my dad because he was less of a languages sort of person, that was difficult. But at the same time, I think they had this great sense of gratitude that Australia is a beautiful country and you can just turn up into a public school and be able to say, I'd love to enroll here because I'm in the catchment and to be accepted. That was a great privilege that I think they were always aware of. Do you think the fact of their sacrifice hung over you as a child? It was something I was always aware of. I don't know if I would say that it hung over me because for me, I, I really thought this is an opportunity, a door that's been opened to me at great cost. And so I want to honor that sacrifice. I, I never thought of it as sort of a, I did have friends who honestly felt quite guilty that their own parents or uncles or aunties or grandparents had made that decision. But I really viewed it as, look, something has been given to me. Um, a gift has been given to me. I want to make the most of it um, that I can. And so I was viewed that as a very positive thing. And on that note, Eddie, what can we play uh, to start the program today? Well, I mentioned my brother before. He uh, is significantly older than me and I got my early musical tastes all from him. And so I think he probably listened to Crowded House on repeat constantly throughout my, uh, you know, primary school years even when he was teaching me how to drive he'd have it on in the car so don't dream it's over is just such a classic one of their songs um and also it was one of the first times when i had a song that really genuinely made me feel something to this day if it comes up on the radio and i'm not expecting it i get chills down my spine when it goes into the bridge i 
depending on who you asked today, <laughs> brought into FPI Radio by surely Australia's most famous maths teacher, Eddie Wu. Did you enjoy primary school, Eddie? Primary school was not a fun experience for me, for the most part. Uh, it was actually owing to, you know, what I looked like and also the fact that I f- fell pretty naturally into the uh, cultural stereotype of being a bit of a bookish nerd. And so primary school, honestly, the vast majority of my memories from that were um, of people bullying me, of feeling very left out. I found it really difficult to make friends. And how, so, would, how would you be bullied? Well, there's a whole range of different things and um you know i don't hold it against um the people who did this to me when i was at school because you know i think that they were trying to come to terms with things themselves but you know it would be anything from um physical aggression to you know just being ostracized and those those little things when you know as as a young child you want to belong you want to feel like you have a group of friends to whom you, you know, you feel naturally like you get me, you laugh at the same things that I do, you value the same things that I do. And I didn't really ever experience that during my primary school years. What was uh, significant about the, the puzzle books that your mum used to buy? When I was uh, experiencing 
some of this bullying. I, I often kind of just buried my head in the pillow when the sun rose. And I just did not want to go to school. And uh, I did everything I could to avoid a day when I knew I'd have to be interacting with these people. And so on those days when my mum was kind of stuck with me at home, uh, sometimes she'd take me out and, uh, you know, we would maybe go to a library or to a bookstore. And she knew how much I loved reading. I think that she had this, uh, you know, now being a parent myself, when you look at your own child's suffering, in some ways it's worse than going through suffering yourself because you can't you can't do anything about it. You would you'd do anything to free that child from that experience. And so she knew I found joy in books. And so, you know, over the years she um, borrowed or purchased many of these for me. And, you know, I really did lose myself in those worlds. It really offered me a sort of escape. Um, and so that was a wonderful thing about them, but they also became sort of a source of, you know, sadness in themselves because as they were treasured possessions, you know, the more you treasure something, the more it grieves you when you lose that thing. And because there were bullies at school who knew how much I enjoyed reading, you know, if I, if I ever made the mistake of bringing those books to school, um, then they'd find them, they'd you know, damage them, destroy them, steal them, all kinds of things, anything that they could do, uh, you know, this is what bullying is, is at at its heart. It's an expression of power. And so that's sadly what those books bring back in terms of memories for me. Tell me about James Roos Agricultural High School, Eddie. High school was a big turning point. Uh, you know, for the first time, I was surrounded by people who I would say really understood for themselves, not just that they looked at me and understood that I wanted to do this, but they understood for themselves what it was like to have a deep passion for learning. And I felt like for the first time, I had permission to be myself. And there were people who were kind of like, yeah, this is something we love too. Mm. Was there a teacher in particular that symbolized that? I'd probably say there are a couple. Um, you know, one of them was my music teacher, Mr. Best. Uh, one of the things that I remember about him was that <laughs> he was endlessly patient. Uh, I have never been a gifted musician. I did learn the piano when I was younger, um, but I was no star student. And yet, despite that, Mr. Best always gave me time. He always looked out for me and he always thought, okay, well, this is where you're at. This is not where I'd like you to be, but I can still help to move you forward. And I think that's what all great educators do. Eddie, what happened to your mother when you were in year 10? When I was 15 years old, um, I remember we have student couriers who are assigned to duty by the office and they would, you know, send messages around or do little errands for the staff. And I was sitting in my class and one of these student couriers knocked at the door and, and summoned me to go in down uh, to the office and see the deputy principal. And that's kind of a weird thing. Like usually that happens if you're in trouble in some way, shape or form. And I didn't think I'd done anything that was you know out of turn. But when I walked into the deputy principal's office, um, what I found out was that um, you know, they just heard news from my parents and they wanted to relate to me straight away um, that my mom had been diagnosed with lung cancer. And this just completely came out of left field for us. Do you remember that moment? What what goes through your head when you heard that? I do remember. I mean, you just sort of, it feels unreal. It didn't feel like, it was a bit of an out-of-body experience. You know, I, I sort of imagined myself sitting there in the office trying to come to terms. You can't possibly figure out what it means. You know, uh, this is a time when to hear the word cancer, 
you know, basically meant, well, you know, how many weeks do I have left with this person whom I love? And, you know, I'm, I'm the youngest of my siblings. And so <laughs> for better or for worse, I'd been quite, you know, babied as a child. I was sort of that, you know, spoiled kind of kid. I didn't, you know, make my lunches until I was, you know, age 17 or something like that. So I had a very strong relationship with her and I couldn't picture what it was like for that to disappear. Did you have to be on call for her? There were moments where, uh, as my mum's health deteriorated, it was something that, you know, someone had to be constantly on hand for lung cancer. You know, it's your your respiratory function. It's your breathing, which gradually lets you down. And so um, it eventually got to the point where she would need oxygen just to, you know, function, just to get to sleep. Um, If her oxygen tank needed changing in the middle of the night, Uh, I was the most, you know, sort of sensible person to do that because my brother was already working. My dad was exhausted caring for my mom all the rest of the time. Uh, My sister was at university, you know, finishing her really intensive degree. Um, And so I kind of became one of my mom's carers and that really changed my life forever. How did that change your life? I mean, what, what did that look like? What did you have to do for her? Well, it was really about, you know, kind of shouldering a lot of the, uh, emotional energy and grief of the family we were all going through you know the grieving process doesn't start you know when someone passes away it doesn't start at the funeral Um, it's a long drawn out process it begins as soon as this news hits you and you start to realize my life is never going to be the same you have dreams about what your life is going to be like and you realize oh this is not going to be this is not going to turn out the way I turned out and you, I, thought, I thought it would turn out and you start to realize okay this is all the things I'm never going to be able to do um, and you know I think my mom felt this the most she held on for three years and so you know during that time we all just kind of as a family we were kind of swallowed up by that you know caring for her meant just just always being you know a shoulder to cry on to try and be I wanted to be as much as I could someone who was strong for the family because I could just see um, how much this was just breaking us into pieces and I wanted someone to be able to hold us together. Do you remember the last time you saw your mother before she passed away? My mom went into palliative care, um, you know, uh, quite quite a while before she passed away because they eventually got to that point where it was sort of like, you know, we, we can't do any more now. We'll do our best to make you comfortable. And... Uh, it was quite far away from where, uh, you know, we lived. My dad would stay over there overnight, you know, many nights in a row, just didn't want to leave her side. Uh, but my brother and sister and I, we would we would go back and forth. And so the, I remember the last day that we saw her before we went home that evening. Um, and that morning, next morning, we heard the news. And the last thing I saw was just how how much pain she was in. And this, this is a weird thing, but when we heard the news the following morning, it was like three or four in the morning. On paper, it sounds like that would be something that gives you, you know, immense heartache and, and sorrow. But actually, the overriding emotion that I felt was relief. She'd been fighting for so long, and I, I knew that she was actually, at last, able to escape that experience. And that was something which actually gave me a sense of, okay, this is all right now she's in a better place what um what music can we play now eddie can we play another song during during those high school years where everything was kind of 
all starting to go through these really dark places. I remember one of my friends, uh, Kian, who uh, he he and I had a lot of classes together, and um, more than most people, I think he understood. You know that I didn't need someone to talk to about what I was going through. I just needed someone to be there, a, a friend, to be a friend and to be normal around me, just to not to treat me like that guy whose mum has cancer. And so I remember he introduced me to Coldplay and he said to me, hey, listen to this. I bet you'd like this. And the first track he played for me was Clocks. Clocks 
That was Clocks by Coldplay, the first compact disc brought by Math Teacher and YouTube sensation and 2018 Australian local hero of the year, Eddie Wu. Eddie, can you take me to the moment that you told your mother and father that you wanted to be a teacher? <laughs> I'm laughing because it was such a hilarious moment when you think about it in reflection it wasn't hilarious then but sort of in hindsight i look back and i think man i think i had more guts than i realized i think it was one of those those fine lines between braveness and stupidity i had come to that point where you know during school um, people had said to us careers advisors said hey you gotta start thinking about what you want to do after school um where do your skills lie what kinds of things do you really want to do with your life and I'd had the joy of doing a bunch of extracurricular things at school, like cadets. I was an army cadet, um, to being a peer support leader. Where I had this opportunity to help younger people, not much younger than me, but younger enough that I could help them grow. I could you know, teach them a skill. And I realized I loved that. And uh, it was not something with you know, high status in society and there wasn't heaps of money in it either. So I knew I was walking into this conversation and I was kind of ready for the disappointment to set in because you know child of migrants they have they've <laughs> sacrificed everything for us to have these opportunities and so i kind of just laid it out and i think immediately just no one knew what to say i think they were kind of like what is he is he serious you know um and i kind of left that silence hanging there and i think maybe they thought Ah, uh, it's just a phase, you know. It's just something he's temporarily, you know. He'll he'll get over that. Um, but as the months ensued, and as I get, I got closer and closer to doing my HSA, putting my preferences in. I think they gradually realized, oh, he wasn't joking, and uh, they did try to talk me out of it uh, a number of times. What but did they say? <laughs> they said things like, you know, do you really want to do this? Like this is teaching is hard work. Uh, do you really want to work with teenagers every day? Like, that's something which people will volunteer. You know, <laughs> I have a friend and he's like, I, you know, I'll catch, pub I catch public transport home every day. And sometimes when I finish work early, I think, oh, I should go to the bus. And then I look at the time and I think, oh, no, it's school time. I'm not getting on a bus with 60 teenagers. Not going to happen. <laughs> I can definitely remember them saying, you know, this is, are you sure this is the life you want for yourself? But there's always been something about, the opportunity to work with young people, to see that look in their eyes when they finally understand something, it just clicks for them in their mind. Or, you know, maybe it's not that amazing moment of clarity, it's that surprise in a student's mind, in a child's mind, when they realize they're capable of something they thought was impossible. I can't do this, sir, this is too hard for me. And you walk them through and you help them and you support them and suddenly, it's like the first moment a kid realizes they're floating. It's like, I'm floating in a pool. I'm doing this myself. It's not you holding me. That's amazing to see every single time. Uh, why, why maths, Eddie? What, what inspired you to, to teach maths in particular? I wasn't heading toward maths when I was at school. I didn't mind maths because uh, I could mostly have a good enough memory that I could, you know, get the formulas in my brain and then, you know, answer the question mostly accurately. But it wasn't the kind of subject I enjoyed. It was very much kind of like, why are we learning this? I don't know. Just stop asking questions. Just do it. Get on with it. And then move on to the other things you really enjoy, which are humanities. I really loved English and history and drama. And that was the kind of teacher that I set out to become. But then when I arrived uh, on enrollment day at the University of Sydney, which is uh, where I went for four years, uh, I, I turned up at the enrollment office for the Faculty of Education. 
And there was, uh, he was a professor, I guess, and he was walking around talking to all of the new people who were enrolling. And uh, when he got to me, he took one look at my academic transcript, uh, which had all the subjects I did on it. And he said, hey, look, you know, I'm not going to force you to change your mind, but I do want you to contemplate. At the moment, anyway, as far as I can tell, uh, you know, 15 years later, this hasn't changed. Uh, we have lots of English and history teachers in New South Wales. We've got plenty of those. You know what we don't have very much of? Mathematics teachers. That's what we're really short on. And, you know, there's just no one turning up to be this. Most of the mathematics people, they've gone to become engineers or actuaries. Would you consider becoming a mathematics teacher rather than English history? Because this is where the need is. And, you know, I mentioned my uh, my faith before. For me, my, my choice of career was very much about taking on an opportunity where I could serve. That's something that's really important to Christians. And service, you know, kind of depends on, well, is there something that people need? Then go do that thing. That's what service means. And so if, if the need was in mathematics, it absolutely made sense for me to go there. I saw a great opportunity. But was there a process at uni where you started to fall in love with mathematics in the same way that you'd been in love with the humanities before? Did it become more than service at some stage? It really did. And I'm really delighted that it has gone through that transition. I think it sort of began at university just very slowly. And then it really took on new life when I actually started work. I realized that I was approaching this subject with a really different purpose in mind. I think, like most people probably, uh, I learned maths when I was at school, basically to pass exams. Like I was kind of like, I don't really like doing this, but I'll do it because I have to. Because if I fail, that's bad. So just do enough of it so you can pass. And as a consequence, I never really needed to understand something really, really deeply, which is tragic, I think. I just needed to understand enough to answer the question. But when I was at university, I was trained to be a teacher. So I thought, you know what? I've got to know this at a different level. I've got to know this not to pass an exam. I've got to know this well enough that I can impart its importance to a a skeptical or a disengaged child in front of me. And so for the first time, I really had to engage with, well, what does this stuff really mean? Like, why do we think as human beings, there aren't many things that we make compulsory for people. We say, you got to read. Okay, you got to do that, right? You got to learn some science. The whole modern world's built on science. Do that. You don't have a choice about it. Maths. Why do we make that compulsory? And so in wrestling with that question, it's starting to realize that maths is not just about solving problems with formulas it's really about logical thinking it's about being able to solve a problem given the evidence in front of you in a, in a critical and creative way when i realized that's what maths was really about i started to see oh it's in all kinds of places i never predicted in fact as we start at the top of the show with it's it's woven into nature itself and that's beautiful like it's so surprising you're like why should there be a connection between not just lightning bolts and blood vessels, but like the, the branches of a tree or the, the spreading out, um, you know, shape of a river delta. What is up with that? And I was just, you know, got a taste of that beauty. Eddie, I'm sure uh, that I have never been so excited about maths as I have for this <laughs> exact moment here on <laughs> FBI Radio right now. But I do have to ask, what can we play now in tribute to teaching? So, tiki, talking about mathematics, I had a... A mathematics head teacher who I, I really respected and when he was going to retire you know he'd been such a, a formative influence on me I thought you know we can't just like write him a card and then say you know bye farewell I wanted to do something really special for him and even though I hadn't been particularly musical when I was younger 
Along the way, I eventually picked up the acoustic guitar and I um, quite enjoyed playing it. And one of the songs that's actually relatively easy to play on the acoustic guitar is uh, Don McLean's American Pie. And of course, it's a great tune. And so I set out to rewrite the lyrics of American Pie as a tribute to Ian Woodhouse, the first head teacher mathematics I ever worked under. And uh, so as a consequence, all of the chord progressions are still in my head and all the lyrics are confused because I rewrote them. So that's why I love American Pie. A long, long time ago I can still remember How that music used to make me smile And I knew if I had my chance That I could make those people dance And maybe they'd be happy for a while But February made me shiver with every paper I deliver Bad news on the doorstep I couldn't take one more step I can't remember if I cried When I read about his widowed bride But something touched me deep inside The day the music Died. So bye bye, Miss American Pie. Drove my Chevy to the levee, but the levee was dry. And them good old boys were drinking whiskey and rye, singing, This'll be the day that I die. This'll be the day that I die. Did you write the book of love and do you have faith in God above if the Bible tells you so? And do you believe in rock and roll? Can music save your mortal soul and can you teach me how to dance real slow? Well, I know that you're in love with him cause I the day that I die. Now for ten years we've been on our own and moss grows fat on a rolling stone but that's not how it used to be. When the jester sang for the king and queen in a coat he borrowed King was looking down The jester stole His thorny crown The courtroom was adjourned
that I die Help the skelter in the summer swelter The birds flew off with a fallout shelter Eight miles high and falling fast The landed foul on the grass The players tried for a forward pass With the jester on the sidelines '70s classic American Pie brought in today by Mass Teacher and YouTube star Eddie Wu. This is out of the box. Eddie, your YouTube channel, uh, often referred to as WooTube, now has over half a million subscribers, almost 30 million views, as I mentioned up the top. How did the idea for the channel come about in the first place? For me, starting to take videos of my classroom lessons and then putting them on the internet, um, it seems I'm really glad that I didn't realize how crazy this was because if I had, I think I would have not done it in the first place. But I had a student of mine and he was a great kid and uh, we were all really taken by surprise when we found out from the head teacher welfare in the school you know what, guys, you need to know about this student. He's unfortunately been diagnosed with cancer. He's only 15 years old. And we were just kind of, we were gutted, you know. we were kind of, This kid was had so many great hopes. You know, that grieving process, teachers go through this constantly because we see what kids are heading towards and sometimes they don't hit the mark that we thought that they would. And that's always a disappointment to us personally. And so I, I knew this kid was going to miss heaps and heaps of school. Now, one of the tricky things about mathematics is when you learn it, all of the concepts are actually very interwoven and interconnected. And I think that's beautiful. It's like a great story, like all the characters and plot lines come together. But it's also really confusing. If you miss a piece, 
then all of the rest of the pieces, they sort of, they're no longer going to fit together. It's a little bit like if you can imagine reading a story like, I don't know, the Harry Potter series or something like that. And if I just cut out all the pages, which had Severus Snape in them, over seven <laughs> books. Now, spoilers, okay. Severus Snape is really important to the entire plot of all of the seven books. Now, you'd be pretty confused when you got to the end. You're like, wait, why is that? Hold on. Why is he crying? Why is he sad? How'd he die? What's going on? I'm confused. People learn mathematics like that when they have gaps. And so I didn't want this particular boy to have gaps in his learning. I remembered what it was like when I was a similar age. And um, I just wanted to be treated like I was normal. I wanted to be able to do normal things, including learning. And so that's why I just got the phone out of my pocket. I thought, this thing can take video. And I propped it up on the table. I hit record. And then I just let my lesson, as usual, unfold in the classroom. And then I took that threw it on the internet and kind of the rest is history how many videos before it began to take off that's a really good question i i suppose it somewhat depends on how you define takeoff um there were a few different moments that i can remember quite clearly i remember the first time when um just a student within the same school but a student in a different class who like i never told anyone hey i'm putting videos up only the people in my class who saw me recording they were the only ones who knew and when this other kid said hey sir uh i missed class i missed a few days because i was actually representing the school at touch football can i watch those videos you make for your 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 class and i was like well i guess if that's what you really want i was kind of like oh how did you even find out and then it kind of it kept on going. I remember the first time I was like, I was buying chicken wings at the butcher and the guy who I took, I, who took my, you know, meat out and put it in a bag, he kind of gave me this funny look and I was like, oh, what's that about? And then he, I gave him the money. He went away, got changed. And he came back and he said, this is going to sound really dumb, but are you a maths teacher? And I was kind of like, yeah, but how did you know? And he's like, oh, like I've watched your videos. Like, I was like, hold on a second. How did like I've never, I don't even know who you are. Like, where is this happening? And it's just kept on happening. Like, I, you know, I get stopped at airports. Um, even even internationally now. I remember I was in Dubai International Airport, and there was this, um, you know, it was a long layover, so I was there in the lounge for ages. And this American um uh teenager, he came over to me. and He's like. I'm not going to try and do the accent because it sounds terrible, but it was like, are you that, are you that Eddie Wu guy? And I was like, you know, and I'm like half awake. Like I'm in the wrong time zone, completely confused. I'm like, am I dreaming? You know? So for me, it's been amazing that it's just the power of technology to be able to spread learning. And it really says to me, like there was no big crazy strategy behind this. Uh, you know, it says to me, people want to learn. Even a subject like mathematics, they want to understand it. And I think that's why the videos are successful as they are. What does it mean to be a master teacher, uh, according to the New South Wales Department of Education? So I've been teaching for more than 10 years now. And, uh, you know, in some respects, that's a long time. In other respects, you know, I'm still, you know, only at the beginning of my career. But one of the things that I've learned is that, you know, teaching is something where, you know, it might be your first time as a teacher in the classroom, trying to learn how to teach something. It might be your first time, but for some of your kids it's their last time or it's their only time. You only get one shot with these guys, right? And so the ability to help a teacher learn, to become a better teacher is something I relied on my mentors, my you know my more senior teachers in faculties that I've been in. And so for me, becoming a master teacher is about taking the lessons I've learned that I've received from my colleagues, 
the things I've learned by experience are terrible things to do. And then to pass on those lessons, those practices, those strategies um, onto the next generation of teachers because I love working with kids all around the country um, and I'm very privileged that I get to do that and travel all around Australia. But I'm just one person. And, you know, if we want to change the way that people think about mathematics and help them see it in a positive light, um, then we've got to help every teacher be empowered. And so that's what the Master's Teacher is all about. Eddie, what can we play now in tribute to WooTube and tribute <laughs> to this part of your life? <laughs> so one of the things that was funny is that when I started, uh, you know, putting videos up, at the beginning, I was kind of like, huh, this seems to work. This is kind of fun. What else can I put up on this channel? And so one of the things I, I realized I could do was um, I could put up some really, really basic videos about the acoustic guitar, um, just like I had been taught. You know, there's lots of people learning stuff on YouTube. Why not put up a few little tutorials? And one of the very first songs that I learned was a Matchbox 20 song. It's 3 a.m. <laughs> Um, it's It's got so few chords that even the most novice guitar player can actually learn it. And uh, it's, a, it's a pretty classic song. She said it's cold outside and she hears me wearing cold. Always worried about things like that. Well, she said it's all gonna end, and it might as well be my fault. And she only sleeps when it's raining, and she screams, and her voice is strange. She says, "Baby." Days and days. 
She thinks that happiness is a map that sits on her doorway That early 2000s classic 3AM by Matchbox 20 brought in today by Master Teacher, according to the Department of Education, Eddie Wu. Eddie, what does it mean to teach maths as a humanities subject? For me, mathematics often falls into this um, sort of cultural trope of you know, being something which you can only do if you're that person who's just like instantly able to calculate numbers, that it's all about uh, being able to find the answer to a uh, an equation, being able to, you know, really have this command of all these different um, abstract things. And some people can do that. And that aspect of mathematics is central and important. But it's not the only aspect of mathematics that I think is important to us as human beings. Mathematics is all about the story of humanity trying to understand the patterns in the world around them. You know, one of the things that sets apart, you know, us as an intelligent species is that, you know, we worked out science. We worked out that the universe is predictable. We worked out that if you do X and if you do it repeatedly, you always observe Y, then there's something here maybe we can take advantage of. Maybe we can invent a technology that can help us to live better in the world. And mathematics is the story of humanity trying to find all of those things and comprehend them. What does that mean for the way that you take maths into the classroom then? So when I then am in a lesson and I want students to experience that, that means at least a couple of things. Number one, I'm not going to focus on, for my students, you know, how quickly can you get the answer? I think a lot of people are sort of traumatized about mathematics because either they weren't fast enough at getting the answers or they always made some really little silly mistake and so they got one number wrong and then you know they just got big fat crosses all over their working which i think is tragic it's very disempowering what i want to do is emphasize well how did you get there what was the reasoning and thinking that took you to understanding what you think this solution is whether or not it's actually perfectly right or not the thinking is what really matters in mathematics so that's the first difference the emphasis on can you tell me why can you give me an explanation not this i don't really care about that final number i care about how you got there and the second thing is I'd like to think, I, I definitely try, I strive for this every single day I walk into the classroom. I like to think that every single one of my lessons obeys the three, you know, the three based, three act structure of every good story. You know, one of the most basic rules of storytelling is three acts, setup, conflict, resolution. If there's no setup in a story, then you don't care about these people, you're not invested. If there's no conflict, it's just boring why are we watching this nothing is happening uh, and if there's no resolution to the story you just leave dissatisfied there's no catharsis there's kind of like ah, what was i supposed to take away from this and i want every single one of my mathematics lessons to have that set up why should this matter to us this particular theorem i'm going to teach you why is it of importance to humanity i want to sow a seed of conflict i want to to make you think wait hold on a second 
why should this be the case? Why should all rainbows be round? Why should every time I try and, you know, I look out the window and try and make sure I can predict what the weather is like, why should it always follow this predictable pattern when weather seems so unpredictable? I want to sew that question in your mind so there's kind of a, huh, I want to know where this goes. There's a conflict. There's this cognitive dissonance. And then lastly, I want to resolve that. I want to give you the satisfying, ah. Oh, it makes sense. There's nothing more profound than when there's something you've experienced your entire life. Something you've known is true, but you've never known why. And for it to suddenly snap into focus in your mind, that's what sort of widens a kid's eyes and it's lovely to see. And that's what teaching maths like humanities looks like to me. Eddie, 30 million students is uh, a lot. Uh, now you're traveling around the country taking um, everything that you've learned and passing it on to other teachers and students everywhere. Do you still have that moment of teaching clarity where you realize that you've made a difference to someone's life? Does that still happen to you now, given everything that's happened? Yeah, I think, and I'm actually really grateful for this because not everyone who has a, um, you know, a professional learning responsibility like mine, sort of the capacity to travel, not everyone gets the opportunity to actually still stay in touch with the classroom. And that's something which is really fundamental to me, you know, um, uh, before speaking to you, I was teaching my year 11 class. And, uh, you know, for me, being there immediate with the kids and just being regular old Mr. Wu is one of the, my favorite things because I'm, I'm still wrestling on a very ground level with, okay, can I take you to the point where, can I give you an experience that will help you understand this? We'll come to a kind of, oh, oh, is this how it works? I can see how this all fits together. And, you know, that's still hard. I'm still trying to push the envelope on new and innovative ways to do that. But that's really what makes me tick. It's why I'm so glad I get to keep doing it. Eddie, on that very humbling note, how can we play out this episode of Out of the Box today? Well, you know, this whole idea of being able to be beside a student as they can understand something for the first time, that's a wonderful emblem of the responsibility I feel to the next generation. I had some great teachers um, in the previous generation, and I want to pay that forward and honor that. And, you know, being that we're talking about music, I kind of have accidentally, and I think we all do this, have passed on not just, you know, my mathematical insights, I hope, but also my musical tastes onto the next generation. And it was really funny. My daughter was telling me this story when she was listening. um, She heard Brian Adams summer of 69, come onto the radio in her friend's house. And uh, she said, oh, I really like this song. And her friend said, oh, I really like this song too. And then they talked to someone else and they're like, why do you like that music? That's so old. Like, that's not like Ariana Grande. It's not Justin Bieber. It's not like cool stuff. It's like, why would you like this music? And then I realized, oh, you like it because I like it. And it's kind of charming that it's very full circle. I got my musical tastes from, you know, the previous generation from me. And now I get to pass them on as well. <laughs> on that, I'd like to say thank you very much to my producers, Bree and Nicole. And Eddie Wu, thank you very much for being my guest on Out of the Box today. Joey, thanks for having me. <laughs>
This podcast is produced by FBI Radio in Sydney. Find more at fbiradio.com slash podcasts. 